This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elixir? How about Elm? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is that it only takes 5 minutes a day. Use coupon code GEEKERY to save $5 on your first month and make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Correct here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. PolyConf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Confirmed speakers include Douglas Scottford, Distinguished Architect at PayPal, and Jason Discoverer, Julia Evans, Machine Learning Expert at Stripe, Guy Bedford, JSPM Creator, and Andreas Rumpf, NIM Language Creator. Tickets are on sale and cost only 192 euros and listeners to the podcast can email hello at polyconf.com and they will give you a personal discount. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated, sign up for newsletter updates, and to register. Curion is taking place July 18th and 19th in Rome. Curion is a rare event where academic minds responsible for concepts and tools, now invaluable to everyday software development, like functional programming or generics in Java, can collide with the movers and shakers and industry that are building next-generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curry-on.org to find out more and to register, and your ticket is good for all of the European Conference for Object-Oriented Programming as well. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th to the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. You can check out 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more. The Erling User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. Early bird tickets are available, and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Visit www.erling-factory.com euc2016 to register and to find out more. Destination Code, a new conference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The YoungConf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Eros Proctor, and this week with us we have Edwin Brady. Edwin, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so hello. I'm a lecturer in computer science at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And one of the things I do there, uh, and <laughs> with a lot of my spare time, is, is working on the Idris programming language, which is a pure functional language with dependent types. And that's exactly the reason I wanted to get, wanted to get you on, was to dig in some depths about Idris and understand what all that stuff means, because I've heard about it. I've seen just a slightly few examples or people phrase, but I'd like to start out with just 
some deeper background about yourself. How long have sure. you been doing this? How did you get into software and the lecturing? And what made you latch on to functional programming and then going the typed and now even stronger types that you're getting with Idris? Sure. So, oh, well, where to start? So I did a degree in computer science, largely because I had been programming for as long as I can remember, actually. Uh, and um, so it's kind of almost a native language in a way. And I got interested in just hacking out code and finding that, that there was always something wrong, always something broken, and, and getting interested in how can I know that my program is going to work? How can I have more confidence that the program I've written is going to do the thing, the thing that I think it's going to do? And after my degree, I did a couple of years working in industry. And, and one day we had a guest talk by Alan Bundy, who's a, a professor of computer science at Edinburgh. And he'd done a bit of work on proving some correctness, proving the correctness properties of, of a small CPU. And I just, something about that was, was, was inspiring. I was just thinking, wow, you can do that? And I kind of started looking into possibilities of where I might be able to go into this sort of topic in a little bit more depth. So I ended up at Durham University doing a PhD in computer science, where I was looking at working on bits of the epigram programming language, which uh, I don't know if you ever came across this, but this was an early experiment in writing a or creating a programming language with dependent types. So with the ability to state properties of programs and prove properties of those programs. So this is this has gone from me being just this, you know, bashing out code and just you know was hoping uh, to the other extreme of really starting from proving properties of programs from specifications and, and sort of my my inner hacker was thinking, well, hang on, this is all very fun and this is we're getting some very nice results here, but but I'd kind of like to make bigger programs. I'd like to be able to compile and run these programs. And what I ended up doing during this PhD was was uh, the the sort of background work that's necessary to compile and run dependently typed functional programs. So at that stage, the, these programs were still kind of very small. So we were you know writing programs to reverse lists and to prove that the output link list was the same length as the input list. You know, it was very very basic things. But but you know, if you can't do the small problems, then you're never going to be able to write the big programs. And all of this eventually leads to me thinking, well, now we've done, we've done a lot of this background work, we've done a lot of the groundwork, we've, we've got some ideas of the kinds of programs we can write. Now I'd like to not just think about how to write the language, I'd like to think about what kinds of programs can we write? How can we change the way we develop software? Is, is, does this kind of approach to programming help us write large-scale software correctly? And uh, that's what I'm still doing. Well, about 15 years later, still trying to figure out if uh, this early work we've done on uh, epigram and dependent types is really going to help us write software that actually works. I like to think it will. I don't think we're there yet. There's still lots of work for us to do. But I think we're making some good progress. And I like to think that languages like Idris are one step on the way to um, you know, being able to write programs and know that they do the right thing. So you went to college or university. You got into industry. And you said you had this background where you're just hacking stuff together and you felt like it couldn't work. So what kind of yeah. stuff were you doing? Was that What were some of those languages you were doing that made you feel those pains? And what were some of that experience that actually drove you to say, 
wow, I really want types. I was working in C++, so, so I had types. And in fact, I had some fairly, uh, fairly expressive types in C++. But the system I was working on was, um, it was a spin-off from some research at Durham University on natural language processing. And they had actually written the initial prototype of this system in Haskell. And the job I had was helping on a you know, fairly large team re-implement this system in C++. So at the time, so this was 2000, at the time it was felt that Haskell wasn't efficient enough, wasn't, the implementations weren't good enough to be able to run uh, the kind of code we were trying to write. It was, it was some fairly sophisticated algorithms that we wanted to go as fast as possible. Now, these days, I wouldn't dream of taking a program written in Haskell and re-implementing it in C++ so that it could be efficient. But back then, it seemed like a good idea. And so I was working on some of the um, sort of the underlying logic of this. Uh, so, uh, so I did. I, I mean, I was working on, even though I say, you know, I was was kind of hacking stuff out and seeing if it works. The thing that I was hacking out and seeing if it works was uh, a fairly formal system. Did tend to segfold quite a bit. I mean, I'd spend an awful lot of my time chasing null pointers and, and memory leaks and so on. And I remember there was one day, one particular aspect of the system I was working on, and I was just thinking, this would be so much easier in Haskell. In fact, essentially what I encountered was, was a situation where I could have bashed out an algebraic data type and a pattern matching definition, and the code would have been done in 10 minutes flat. But instead, I had to figure out how to do it in C++. And I just thought, yeah, I don't, I don't really... I don't like this way of writing this program. I mean, surely there's better languages than this. So one of the things we, we did cover on our degree was programming in Haskell. When I did a degree, I thought, you know, this is fun, but I can't see myself ever using this in practice. And then, you know, a couple of years into this job, I encountered this thing and the trips a memory of, oh, yeah, I, I remember Haskell. This would be a nice way to approach this problem. I forgot what your question was now. but <laughs> It was more the experience that you were kind of talking about of what you found and those kinds of things that were helping to drive you to want to go to the stronger, more specific type system and the dependent types even. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that got me into dependent types, so back then I didn't really realize that what I was looking at was sort of algebraic data types and strong type systems. That took a bit of learning a bit about the background of theorem proving and, and theorem proving systems such as uh, Coq before you know, seeing what you could actually do. At that time, I was just thinking, you know, surely there is a better way of, of approaching this kind of problem. And it was only after, you know, seeing some of the, the prototypes of Epigram and thinking, this theorem-proving lock is easier than it looks, if you have a language that helps you. So you had the exposure to Haskell in university. Were there any other things that kind of helped segment that knowledge and baseline? So when you actually came back and were familiar with that, that I guess, because I would imagine that once you started seeing your CPU stuff, that the professor or instructor or whoever showed you about proving those constraints that you started seeing the spectrum of the line of the different levels of types from completely dynamic to the types of C++ to the very strong types and different type system with algebraic data types of Haskell to the things that you were talking about with being able to prove via COC or I guess AGDA is a similar thing I've heard referenced around that. Was that foundation kind of laid back in university, or was that something that you discovered separately and on your own? So that's a good question. And honestly, I don't actually know, because I don't think I ever made the link between programming and Haskell as it was presented to us. So, you know, we were taught Haskell by some people who were using it to do AI and natural language processing, and we were 
we were solving kind of interesting search problems. And, you know, it's kind of fun. And then I saw this talk on formal logic and, and proving CPUs correct. And it was a while before I noticed this link between type systems and logic. And I really can't remember when, you know, the penny dropped when I learned about, you know, the Curry-Howard correspondence. I can remember not knowing about it, and I can remember knowing about it, but I don't remember the point when I went from one to the other, if you see what I mean. So, you know, we talk about teaching stuff, you talk about threshold concepts. So, you know, a concept that is, when you learn the concepts, like, you know, let's say variables in programming, like if you do programming, you know what a variable is. You just have internalized it. There is no problem. You don't even think about it. But when you start learning programming, you have no idea what a variable is, and you have to kind of figure out what that is. And you don't remember the point when you go from not understanding it to understanding it, because it's, it's something that's so fundamental that you can't even imagine not understanding it. Anyway, this is the sort of situation I have. I genuinely can't remember when I went from that point of, of not knowing about the Curry-Howard correspondence to knowing about it. It must have happened at some point in the last you know, 15 years or so. But uh, you know, there you have it. I mean, I do remember thinking back to when I was finishing up university and I was, I was sort of hacking stuff in Python, for example. So I was learning Python and I was thinking, writing out programs and trying to write down my data types before writing down the program and discovering that, oh, hang on, I can't do that in Python. It doesn't give me this way of describing the types that I'm working with, not in a form that I, that I like anyway. And so I guess that was when I started thinking about the distinctions between static typing and dynamic typing. But I don't know, it's the concept of type systems and the distinction between static and dynamic typing seems to be something that I've internalized that I can't actually remember when, uh, when I learned about the difference. That's not a very helpful answer, but there you go. <laughs> so if you did some Python at one point too, and sometimes if you had that hacker mentality where you want to get something up and running and out quickly... Have you found that you ever want to go back to some of the dynamic stuff just to prove out a concept? Or have you gotten to the point where you can take those types and they become interned and you can just knock something out in Idris or Haskell just as quickly as you can with Python or another dynamic language like that to prove out a concept? I generally find, and I think I've always found this, even if I have been just hacking something out, that I tend to, if I'm doing exploratory programming, I would generally do it by writing down some types and you know i have i have the type of the input to a function i have the type of the output to a function and then the game is how do i get from one to the other and i find that i i can think about that much better if i write down the type first and you know thinking about i sort of feel like i've always worked that way so i don't very often find that I want a more flexible type system, to be honest. Because if I, if I was ever working in something like Python, I always wanted to write down the structure before I wrote down the rest of the program. So I like to think of, so I mean, I talk now about type-driven development. So where the type is, is like you, if you think of the type as being the plan. So if you can write down the input type and the output type, then you and the compiler have this shared understanding of what the plan is. Um, if, if, if we can work out a way between us of getting from one to the other, then we've won. So to me, exploratory programming is figuring out what those types are rather than typing some functions in and seeing what they do. If you type in a function without an understanding of what you think it's going to do and then try it out, 
to me, that's like saying, okay, this is the execution of the plan. What was it we were trying to do again? And I'd rather go the other way. I guess different people work in different ways. I'm, I'm not saying that that is the definitively right way to program. That's just the way I, uh, I have always wanted to approach problem-solving programming. And the reason I ask is because it seems that there is a certain mindset change that it takes if you're going from the, I roughly know what this is going to do and I'm going to play with it, to making that switch to thinking about the types and inputs and outputs and constraints up front and there is that balance there that says can i just go back to this and kind of like play with something until i get it working versus thinking ahead of time and say nope this is exactly what i need to do i can't start until i know that what's going in is what's going out kind of balance. yes i I don't quite go that far though i'll start with what i think should be the input type with some appropriate constraints what i think should be the output type and i would say almost all of the time i get that wrong because you know i haven't exactly figured out what the right types should be. So write down the type, write down what I think is going to be the program, and then I'll hit some point where, oh, hang on, that that type didn't quite work. And then it's just go back to the type, refine it a bit, and see what it will take to make it work. So it's a two-way process. It's not we must get the type right before we can move on. It's let's see if we have something close to the, the right type, write the program, and see where it falls apart, see where it stops working, and then revisit the type. And that makes sense. And it was just the difference of the, do I have a good idea of what my type is or do I just know something that's more dynamic where it's like, uh, it's got to be stringish. It could be kind of anything that's like a string versus I'm expecting a string. Maybe the string is the wrong thing because I need to refine that down to, from my understanding of Haskell and what Idris provides you as well is something like, here's a name. This is string that represents a name so it's got these certain characters and not any string could be passed in. Yeah. As you develop the program over time, your your understanding of what the program is supposed to do is going to change, naturally. But to me, I always have to have at least some kind of model in my head of what's going on, and I want to be able to express that model to the machine and... Well, I'm sort of using model and type interchangeably here, and you know I'll express that model in the in the form of a type. And as my understanding of of the program develops, like for example, I might discover that the when I have a string, what I really mean is a hierarchical name, so a list of strings. Say it's and and I should be able to you know go back and change the type and then see how the program has to change accordingly. So it's although we say types go up types go up front and types help us write the program that they're not set in stone they're things that should you know evolve over time and that makes sense and what makes idris interesting is it's not just the types it's the types don't live by themselves the types have constraints around them as well is what sounds interesting if i understand idris right from everything i've heard well the constraints themselves are types but but yeah i mean that's a reasonable way to think about it cuz I don't think of it as allowing more, firstly, expressivity in types, so you can say exactly what you mean, and just allowing more precision in types, so you can you can constrain the types to say more about the properties you care about in your program. Yeah, and that's what sounds interesting, is that it's not just from the small intro examples I've seen of Idris, is it's not just I take a list or I take two lists. If I'm going to essentially do like a zip of two lists, it's I take two lists that are both of the same length. Whereas in some of these languages that aren't even, that are typed, but not super strong, like a C++ 
or Java or C Sharp or whatever, where you just have this thing. You may not even think about the constraints of what it means to actually be this for this to be valid until later. Whereas it sounds like Haskell and then starts it, but Idris takes it full fledged power of those properties are inherent to the types themselves, right? Yeah, and I I like to think of it as using the types to express. Like when you write a function, you might make some assumptions about the inputs of that function, and you might you might have some contracts you might say to satisfy about the outputs of that function. So you know, thinking back to my C plus plus days and where everything always went wrong, it would be like you'd write a function under the assumption that you have a list that's never empty because something somewhere else, wherever the source of that list is, it never gives you an empty list, and that's fine and it works. And then six months later. You find that someone somewhere has broken that assumption because you know, some other requirement has come in, and you've had to you've had to change the source that will, you know, gives you an empty list, and lo and behold, you get a seg fault. And that happens to me, you know, that happened that happens in Haskell programs as well. You know, you you make assumptions about the function, you know, like head on list makes the assumption that the list has at least one one element, just to pick a really simple example. And what the Idris type system lets you do is is say, well, if if you're going to make that kind of assumption express the assumption in the type, then at least if that assumption is violated, you're going to get a compile error. Or if, you, if you're going to feed some input to a function that makes an assumption that the list is empty, you'd better have a dynamic check that that, uh, that, that list really is non-empty. So it's just being completely honest with the compiler about what it is you're trying to do and being explicit about the kinds of assumptions you're making. You know, instead of just writing down in a comment, because, you know, I do this in, in my Haskell programming, I'll write, you know, assumption, this list has this form. Whereas in the Idris programs, I, instead of writing assumption, I'll write down a type to say, we're going to assume that this list has this form, and here is the proof that it has this form. If you want to call this function, you have to provide that proof somehow. So, you know, hopefully this means that crashing because of incomplete inputs to functions or, or crashing because you're taking the head of an empty list or, or bounds checks fail. Hopefully these become a thing of the past because the type system is helping us find out where we need to make the checks. And you said you started with proving out just the difference in supporting the list operations and things like that. Like I think you said reversing a list twice returns the same list. Or even just that reversing a list preserves the length of the input list. You know, It's not exactly a proof that the program is completely correct, but it is a very useful property to have. And so how did that start? You mentioned you were taking some of the stuff. You had your PhD, but what are some of those things for people who are completely new to this to start understanding if they were thinking about checking out Idris and trying to figure out where some of that comes in? So I've heard things like you've got QuickCheck and Haskell and variations across a bunch of different languages that have started to creep in. But what is that thing that people should start to understand about some of those constraints as they start to look into Idris if they're interested in checking out Idris. Because you started to say why Idris becomes interesting at a larger level, but how does one start to make that transition from what you found? How does one get going? Okay, so if we go back a step, say you have an imperative programming background, you're moving to functional programming. One of the things that, I mean, we people could I'm sure, argue for days over what functional programming actually is. But I'll say that I'll, I'll, my thinking of functional programming is it's about having first-class functions. So when you move from an imperative language to a functional language, one of the things that you have to sort of grok is, is this idea that functions are a first-class 
construct in the language. You can pass them around, you can create them in programs, you create them at runtime and so on. So then when you move on to Idris, when you move on to dependent types, the next step is, okay, now types are a first-class construct. So types are things that programs can return, programs can construct. You can write functions that take you know, some values at input, as inputs and computer type as the output. And then you can use that type to learn more about your program. And certainly for people with a C or C++ background, there is a function that everyone will be familiar with that has exactly this property, and it's uh, printf. So printf takes a format string, and then it takes some other uh, arguments where the types of those arguments are things that you can deduce from the format string. So you can encode this pretty directly in Idris. So you write a function that takes a format string as an input and returns the type of the printf function as its output. And then that type is the type of the rest of the printf function. So if you understand this concept of you can compute the type of a function from the value of one of its inputs, then that's the first step towards really understanding what's going on underneath. And you can write some really very simple and perhaps slightly contrived examples of this. Like you could write a function that uh, sort of, it feels like it would be far easier to be doing this at a whiteboard or at a an editor buffer, but I'll, I'll try anyway. Right, so you write a function that takes a bool as an input and returns a type. And if the, if the input is true, it returns int. And if the input is false, it returns string. So then you write, let, let's call that function bool to type. And then we'll write another function that takes a boolean as an input, we'll call it x, and that returns bool to type of x. So if that function takes true as an input, it will return an int. And if it takes false as an input, it'll return a string. This is really the, the essence of what's going on underneath, is the ability to have the value of one argument determine the type of another argument. And once you've internalized that idea, the rest really builds on that. And if you take that, you mentioned zip earlier. So zip is a function that takes two lists of the same length. Well, how does that actually work in practice? What it does is it takes the length as its first argument, then a list of that length as its next argument, and then another list of that length as its next argument. So it really is taking that number, the length of the list as an input to the function, and using that to compute the types of the rest of the inputs to the function. So the type of one input can be determined by the value of another input. And it sounds like, again, this is probably a poor analogy, but the types are just specialized types of functions as well that give you extra data around it that you can essentially validate on. Is that, um, is that roughly equivalent for a poor analogy? That's the best place to try and draw on from my lack of experience. So you could specialize the type of a function given an input to the function. Is that what you mean? Just thinking that if you have a list that at compile time that you would be able to know that the list is of length X. Right. Whereas this other list is a list of length Y. There seems like there's some introspection about the types if you're building that list dynamically as well kind of thing. So if you're building the list dynamically, then what you would have to do is like, let's say, well, say you've read them as... Um, from the console. So you've read two lists from the console and you want to zip them together for whatever reason. So 
if those lists came from some known source, like they just came from somewhere else in your program, then you might, you might know that they're the same length. But you know, users aren't noted for their ability to provide valid inputs to things, so so you're going to have to check. So basically, what you have to do is check that those two lists really do have the same length. If they do, you can go ahead and zip them. If they don't, well, you have to decide what to do. Maybe you prune one of them, or maybe you report an error. But what the types are getting you in that kind of situation is they are telling you exactly what checks you have to make in order to be able to run the function you want to run. So there is like a runtime check involved here. I mean, there has to be, because if you were writing this program in a simply typed language and you wanted it to do the right thing, you're going to have to do the dynamic check. A lot of the time, this goes back to my, my history of C++ programming, you just start thinking, oh yeah, that's bound to be all right. I'll just, I'll just run it and see what happens. Well, the type system here is going to tell you, no, actually, you do need to do that dynamic check. And uh, I'd say, you know, if I can just take the opportunity for a shameless plug, because that's, uh, that's exactly the example that, that I use in Chapter 8 of the Type Driven Development book of, you know, you have two things coming from different sources, two lists of different lengths. How do you deal with that? How do you make it possible to run a function that is making the assumption that the lengths are the same? And we're good with the shameless plug about that book because I was planning on talking about that book in a little bit anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So it's good that you bring it up because I was going to be asking about what all that covers. And so that was one of the things that I had heard. And I went to a conference last year in 2015 and Brian McKenna was there and he was actually talking about using Idris just from the types and it almost used it to solve the the program itself where he was talking about his example, I believe was determining the identity function where F of X is the same as F of F of X and using Idris to essentially prove out and determine and help you generate the program means that function is the identity function because that's the only function that does it. So it sounded like there's some interesting abilities there too. Yeah, so there's um, this is an interesting point actually because uh, I often read people saying, "Oh, so so Idris doesn't have top level type inference; it doesn't have full type inference. So you can't just write a program and have Idris infer the type of that function." And and, and people say, you know, or some people say that's a big deal, that's a big myth. This is something that we really need. And I say, well, actually, there's two sides to this. I hate to say the phrase "well, actually," but yeah. If you give the type of a function up front, then you have some hope of the machine figuring out the program for you. Whereas if you give the program up front, like in Haskell, if you give the program up front, you might have the machine give the type for you. Well, I would rather give the type up front because the type is the plan. The type tells me and the compiler what we're going to work on together. So I like to think of the compiler as being like my research assistant, that I tell it what we're going to do, and maybe it will fill in some of the boring details for me. So this kind of example, they tend to be quite small examples, but they're, they're, they're examples of, of where we can, you know, there's only one obvious program that fits this type, so just tell me what it is. Save me having to think about it. Save me filling in the details. This sort of thing does come up quite a bit in practice. I mean, the, the examples that we show in talks, things like, you know, uh, map and zip and zip with, these, these are things that look quite impressive, and of course, obviously they're carefully set up so that they work well in talks. But it's the sort of thing that, you, that in practice, if you've got a little bit of plumbing that you need to do, you've got a value of one type and you, you need to produce a value of another type and it's just like really boring plumbing to get from one to the other. It's the kind of thing that you can do is have the machine fill in that, that little detail for you. It almost sounds like a prologue 
using types in that case in those small little examples that he was outlining, which is what seemed really interesting about it is your constraints become your types. Yeah. So as things stand, it's unfortunately not as clever as Prologue. It really is quite a, <laughs> a um, basic approach it takes, which is that it will simply try every possible value for the constructors and it will try to make recursive calls and just search until it finds something that fits. And if your types are precise enough, it's almost embarrassing how well that works. But you mentioned Prologue. I think we can take an awful lot from the kind of work that uh, people have done in, in, in that community and really solve some fairly interesting constraints. But that's in the future. And I'm not intending to put that on your plate for now, but it was just <laughs> one of those things that it seemed reminiscent of what I had seen of Prologue, where it's like, oh, we we can do your types, and this will actually almost generate your function for you if you get your types right. And like, hey, if you write your types well enough, maybe one day in the future you could actually have your whole program be generated for you because you've now specified your types. Yeah. Also, I mean, the fact that you mentioned Prolog is interesting because when you when you write down certain kinds of data types, so often the, a data type you write will will essentially be predicates on on other data types. So you're saying that you know if you have these two things, they fit together in this way, which is remarkably like what you're doing in Prolog a lot of the time. So the the uh, <laughs> something not unlike a Prolog interpreter might be a way of constructing large chunks of your program automatically. Now, I do say, though, that when you, when you do this kind of program search from, so you've got, a, uh, you've got an input type and you're looking for a program, you don't really want to be just saying, okay, here's my type, find me the program. Because there's not necessarily a guarantee that just because it's found a program, it's exactly the program you wanted. This doesn't really free you from understanding what your program is supposed to do, but it does free you from the a lot of the boring details of getting the thought from your head into the editor buffer. I suppose if your type is precise enough, then, then you can be sure that the program is going to do the right thing. But then you start getting into questions of, well, hang on, how do I know if I've got the right type? Which is, you know, again, a whole different, uh, a whole different question. But I mean, it's, it's giving us more tools for getting to working programs quicker. And I can only claim that that's a good thing. Again, it sounds very, very impressive. And what I just allude to, though, those things is the impact it could have on software development in 10, 20, 50 years once you start taking some of this stuff and having these smaller components that are actually specialized based off a of type and what that implies long term for people who are have some life in the industry because some of us enjoyed doing this and could plan on doing this for another 60 or however many years until we're passed out at the keyboard. Yes. Yeah, we do We do have a long way to go before you know, some of our grand ideas really are the way people write programs in practice, but we're getting there, I hope. So you brought up the book, so I figured now's a good time to kind of dive into the book and kind of go over the book. So you've got type-driven development with Idris. It's out for Manning. It's in early access, so it's still being iterated on, and you're still in the process of writing it. Yeah, still got about three chapters to go, and then all the editing. So do you want to give an overview of that path it lays out for you, and what are some of the things that you think people might be novel, and and I guess the experience level of someone who wants to look at that? Because I've heard some other people talk about, it might be worth 
learning Haskell before you jump into Idris? That way you have some of that foundation before you try and approach Idris. So what's the audience of that book and what's that path look like that you're planning on for the book? So the target audience is, is people who already have a bit of experience of functional programming. So there's there's assumptions. I mean, I, I very briefly explain things like, you know, what is a higher order function? What are algebraic data types? But I don't go into a huge amount of depth. So there's an assumption that you've seen that before. I don't think it's true that you need to have Haskell experience before you start programming in Idris. And I think in some ways, it might hurt because there'll be certain assumptions that you make about the way of writing types, the way of writing programs. It might be better just to go directly into Idris. One clear advantage of, of doing Haskell first is that Haskell is a much more mature compiler. But I don't think there's anything that in particular that you would gain from knowing Haskell well that would help you learn Idris. It's, it's perfectly fine to start from, say, ML or Scala or really any, any functional language. And the goal of the book is not so much to teach Idris, because it's nice that there are a lot of people interested in Idris, but I think more generally, people are interested in, you know, no, no one, at least in the short term, is going to be dropping whatever language they use and, and then using Idris in their day job. So what I'm trying to get across in the book is some of the concepts that we've learned while developing this idea of dependently type programming, and that's really about type-driven development. So that's why the headline is type-driven development rather than programming with Idris. It's about taking types as the first thing you do and then refining your types as necessary in order to arrive at something that, that describes exactly what the program is supposed to do. A lot of the book, if you, if you look at, um, at many programming books, typically what you see is complete programs that are an, an explanation of what's going on in these complete programs. What I do instead is I present the type that we're starting from and then go step by step how you get from that program to the final result. So it's, it's really much more about the process of going from the type to a working program than it is about the program itself. So there's an awful lot of talking about holes. So Idris has this concept of holes, which are incomplete programs. So they're gaps that are waiting for a program to be put in those gaps. So the, the analogy I like to use is you think about those shape sort of toys that you have when you're a toddler, you know, you've got the, the shapes in the roof and, and you put uh, you got, you got some shaped holes and you put the appropriate shape through the holes. That's essentially what uh, type-driven development is, is finding the right shape to put in the right hole. And once you have them all filled in, that's your complete program. So yeah, it's, it's about starting with a program and then filling in the holes and refining them as necessary until you have a complete uh, thing. So I certainly feel it's more enlightening to talk about the process of getting to the program as explaining the final result, because you're going to spend more of your time, you know, when you're programming in practice, you're spending a lot more of your time with incomplete programs and trying to work out where you're going than you do with a final program. Programs spend most of their time in an incomplete state, so we should, uh, we should talk about that. We should see how to work with that. So it doesn't aim to cover the entire Idris language. It really aims to cover the fundamental ideas of, of programming with dependent types and this process of type-driven development. Okay. And with that, that just makes me think of another question along the things of type-driven de development, where you said a lot of programs spend their time in incomplete states. It almost seems like a lot of programs spend even more of their time in evolving states where you're having to go and change the behavior of the programs to add the features or 
to go fix bugs yeah. or however many bugs you might get in a stronger type system. But I've heard things talking about like people in Haskell and some other very strong type languages where it's like, I just did this giant refactoring and I had my types there as my safety net and to guide me along the way. And it took a while, but I can't imagine if I would have ever had to accomplish this in another language. Does the book at all go through things like that where you're having to evolve the type system from one type to add a new feature or how is Idris found to be going for the just maintainability side with the types? Yeah, so that's, uh, I do that all the time with types. It, when I'm working in Haskell, most of my biggest programs are in Haskell. I need to add an argument to a function or I need to add a field to a constructor or something. What do you do? You add it, you hit compile, and you look for all the error messages, and that tells you exactly what you have to fill in. Well, it works exactly the same way in Idris. And I actually do have an example of this in the book, funnily enough. So one of the, one of the running examples is just a you know, fairly basic data store, so like a, a very simplified NoSQL sort of system where you have just key value pairs. Well, not even key value pairs. And there's an early chapter where I just show using vectors to show that um, you have the index in bounds and keep, keep the index okay. And then in a later chapter, I refine that a bit and say, okay, let's not have just strings in this data store. Let's have schemas and we'll, have, we'll, we'll allow a user to enter a schema and then we'll calculate the type of the data from that schema. And what we're going to do is take the earlier version we had in an earlier chapter and we're going to change the data type and see what happens, see, see what the compiler says. So it does walk through that process of taking an earlier version of a program with a simpler type than, you know, it turns out you needed a more complex type. What happens when you change that type? What do you have to do next to make this program work? And what I've tried to do is show how you might use holes and incomplete programs to help you do that refactoring. And, you know, it's a fairly small example because, you know, there's only so many pages that people are willing to read through this kind of thing. But, but it's, it's, it's an attempt to show exactly how you do that kind of thing in Idris. A lot of the time when you're doing a refactoring, I mean, I, certainly I find this, I don't know if other people do. This is where dynamic types, I will have to admit, help, help you out somewhat, where you have program where there are, you have type errors, but you've, you've finished the bit that you want to try out. Like you want to, you're quite happy to accept that there's type errors in one bit of your program because that's not the bit you want to test right now. So I think Haskell has some support for this kind of thing these days, like just ignore type errors and run the program. Holes help you get through this because they say, okay, I, I know I haven't finished this bit of the program yet. I'm just going to leave a hole and I'll fill it in later. I'll run the program and see what happens in the presence of this, uh, of this hole. So yeah, I, I do try to uh, talk about that kind of process. I guess it's up to readers to judge how well I've achieved that. And hey, we're still in early access, so if people find it doesn't make sense, they should let me know, and I'll uh, attempt to uh, elaborate or fix it. That sounds good. And so with the Idris community, I've heard a lot of interest in it, mm -hmm. for a lot from people looking at the stronger type systems. From one of the main heads and the main driver of the programming language, how have you found the adoption of Idris and the community swelling up around it? So I have heard the odd story of people uh, using it commercially for some, just for some little sort of toy things, which is always, I don't know, both pleases and worries me, to be honest. Uh, but 
but um, um, most of the people who are actively doing things in Idris are academics, are doing academic research into, firstly, just what can you do with dependently tied programming languages? And secondly, what looking at other domains that can really benefit from having a language that allows you to state things about your types precisely. And then I think the rest of the community is people who are sort of trying to learn the ideas because maybe they want to use similar ideas in their own day jobs in their, you know, Scala programming, for example. There seem to be quite a lot of people whose day job is Scala programming who have an interest in trying stuff out in Idris, which is certainly pleasing. So that's certainly my impression of how the community is made up. But yeah, these are the ones I hear about. I'm sure there's, there must be others that I don't hear about. A lot of the activity on the mailing list and IRC channels is people who are trying to learn about you know, software correctness or, or trying out ideas that they've seen in other systems like, you know, COC or AGDA or and trying them out in Idris, or maybe taking a Haskell program where they haven't been able to express what they want in the type and thinking, okay, can I do this in Idris? You had mentioned a lot of people were looking at Scala and Haskell and looking at Idris out of interest of dependently typed languages and stuff. Have you noticed people trying to bring that back in or is this just learning it for the sake of learning it and then being ready for the day when Idris or some other dependently typed system becomes production worthy and it can be used full fledged. So I, I think, or maybe I just hope, I think it's a bit of both. So I've seen some examples of taking ideas from dependently typed programming, not just Idris, but you know, Agda as well, other systems, and trying to re-implement those ideas in Scala, for example. So there was a, a talk I did a couple of years ago with uh, Miles Sabin, who's the author of the Shapeless Library, where essentially what happened was I wrote an Idris program and said, okay, can you do that in Scala? And he did. And pretty much anything I threw at him, he would, he would manage to do in Scala. And it, not necessarily in a way that you might want to write, but at least showing that it's possible, which is kind of fun. But I think a lot of it is just saying, okay, let's be ready for the day when this kind of, this kind of approach to programming matures, takes off a bit more, and becomes more ready for production. And I hope to some extent, being, uh, wanting to be the people who help make programming in Idris or similar languages something that we can really do in, in, in production. You know, we have, you know, I, my day job is doing academic research and teaching. So in, in the end, it's not really my job to take Idris and turn it into something that people can sell to their bosses as, as a language to program in. You know, that's something that it would be nice if it happened, but it's not something that I'm going to be able to do on my own. But if there's people who are playing around with Idris, trying out some new ideas, who are able to put in a bit of time to polish up some of the rough edges, then, you know, maybe, maybe things will take off a bit. Who can say? Just related to that, when you're talking about this idea of Pac-Man completeness and the idea of getting or taking ideas from Idris and bringing them back into Scala, there's one thing that sort of been on the edge of what we were talking about, but not quite what we're talking about, which is the idea of totality, writing total programs. So programs which we know cover all possible inputs and we know are going to terminate. And one of the things behind type-driven development is that the type tells you, or should tell you, everything you want to know about a program, uh, every, everything about what a program is going to do. If you're also faced with the possibility that that program might crash, maybe it doesn't cover all the possible inputs, or maybe there's a situation where it goes into an infinite loop, 
then the type isn't necessarily telling you everything you need to know. It's saying that if this program produces an answer, the answer will be of this type. Whereas if a program is total, you know that this program will eventually produce an answer and it will be of this type. Now, it might produce, you know, there's no guarantees about how long it'll take to produce that answer, but at least you know it will produce an answer of the right type. And as things stand, I don't know how easy it would be to adapt Haskell compilers or Scala compilers to be able to sort of deal with that kind of concept. But I'd like to, one way I'd like to go is we should be writing programs where we can state that this program is definitely going to, or this function is definitely going to terminate with an input of the right type. And, you know, I find when people are writing, this, this is something that people like to do when they're writing Idris programs. So Idris has this totality checker, which says conservatively whether the program terminates or not. And people do like to really convince the compiler that the program is going to terminate. So I think that's something that we will hopefully pay more attention to in the coming years. And you mentioned a couple of things about like making Idris's rough edges smoother so they could be used in production and getting it to a state probably where it doesn't worry you as much when you hear the stories about Idris running in production. Yeah, I mean, when, when, <laughs> I think when people do that, they tend to generate code from it so that they're not actually relying on any bits of Idris in the end, which is slightly reassuring to me. <laughs> yes. But what are some of those things that are needed to help flesh out Idris if someone is listening to this and feels they want the challenge of going and taking it after they've looked at Idris and said, hey, this is really nice? What are some of the kind of things that you would need help on to help move Idris forward? So for me, the main thing is performance. So the compiler takes up too much memory and the various tools they they probably take up too much memory and they feel a bit sluggish sometimes and and this is not this is not something that's a fundamental problem it's just that when you're figuring out how to make the thing work in the first place it's like you know first make it work then make it efficient so there's a few like fairly easy things that we can do to make things work a lot better which we'll you know get around to soon enough so that's performance of the compiler and also performance of the generated code so currently what we do is we generate C and we have a fairly simple runtime system and it's intentionally simple. It's something that we want to be able to look at the runtime system and know that um, you know if something goes wrong, it's not the runtime system's fault. So just to keep things simple for ourselves. So if there's people out there who are interested in code generation and you know compilers and code generation, who want to write a better runtime system for Idris or a better garbage collector for Idris, I would be very open to that. I would very much welcome that kind of person. So I guess I could mention this here. Idris does have the ability to plug in alternative backends. So we've got the C backend that generates C. There is also a JavaScript backend, although it's, it's not maintained so heavily. If people do want to experiment with different ways of generating code from Idris, there's a plugin system that allows you to just experiment without having to get too deeply into the, the compiler itself. And then, you know, if, if someone wants to write and maintain LLVM code generator, I would certainly be happy to help. Many other, many other people would too, I'm sure. So that's one side of it, is just having a compiler and a runtime that performs better. And the other side is, this is always going to be the case, having bindings to um, libraries. So having good networking code, having good graphics libraries, and thinking carefully about the kinds of types that you would give to these libraries. Because we can do things like take an API like the Sockets API, where you have 
you open a connection, you send some data over that connection, you close the connection. So the socket is in a different state at each stage through that process. And, and just thinking about the types that you can give to your networking libraries to be precise about the state that various components of the system are in as you run through the program. So not only having bindings to these libraries, but exactly working out what the right types for these APIs should be. So yeah, if, if anyone feels that there is a library missing, then please do think about how you might contribute such a thing. I think we're a friendly community. If we're not a friendly community, people should tell us and we'll, we'll try to fix that. So I hope that we're welcoming to anyone who wants to uh, have a go at contributing some library code and you know, we'll help you out. And then you've got, there's the Idris site, but where are some of the best resources for people who are new to Idris to come and check? So you got the Idris site, you got your book, and if you had other students or something that heard you talk at school at their university and heard a lecture and said, hey, this sounds interesting, or anything else that someone says, hey, this is, this is interesting, how do I get up and running? So where are some of the good resources to go find for that? So we've generally been pointing people at the tutorial. And actually, one of, one of the reasons I thought it would be a good idea to write this book is that there really wasn't any good tutorial, in-depth tutorial available. As far as things that you can just get, you can download now. One of the nicest introductions is in David Christiansen's MSc thesis. So it's a little bit, uh, possibly a little bit dated now because we have been, you know, changing things around a bit. We've been uh, occasionally finding that we've made mistakes in a library or whatever, and we've changed stuff. But as an introduction for how to get up and running with programming independent types, I think it's a nice start. There are a couple of and it, it sort of seems strange to recommend a PhD thesis as a, as a good place to introduce a language. But as some of the background chapters, again, in David's thesis and in Yander Mancuse, who's recently finished his PhD, there's some background in those theses that, that can hopefully help you out. Also, just a number of blog posts out there where people have taken some little example and tried it out in Idris. But in the end, I think we are somewhat short of really good introductory free tutorial materials. Again, if anyone is inspired to uh, take what they've learned and write an introductory blog post or tutorial, then I think we'd very much welcome that. We do have our tutorial. We do have you know, tutorials on various aspects of the system, but they are kind of brief. And if people go to them and find that they don't make sense or there's some details that they feel are missing, then again, you know, please do ask. Please do ask us to clarify. We are, I hope, friendly. <laughs> And I know you've spoken at some conferences in the past. Do you have any conferences coming up that you're going to be presenting at so people can find you, watch your presentations, or at least keep an eye on the videos as they come out to know what's going on with Idris or any places where they can just keep up with what's going on and find out more about Idris as it progresses? So I do give talks to conferences fairly regularly. I will have given one just before this podcast goes out, I think, but I haven't given it yet as, we're, as we speak. So this is Big Tech Day in Munich, and I believe it will be recorded and it will be made available. So look out for that one. I don't have anything else lined up, but they will happen. I, to be honest, most of what I'm doing over the next few months is making sure I get this book finished. So I guess look out for that. <laughs> And yeah, keep keep your eyes peeled because uh, I do talk a lot on the internet. And where are some of those places people can find you on the internet? So there's Scala World from last year. So it seems slightly strange to be saying that uh, I spoke about Idris at a Scala conference, but there you go. There is Code Mesh, where 
I've spoken in 2013 and 2014. And when I give all of these talks, I generally do this with a, maybe half the talk as an introduction to programming in Idris, as just to get you up to speed with how the language works and what programs look like. And that pretty much stays... You can learn a lot, I think, from that, even from some of the older talks. And then maybe the second half of the talk, I'll talk about whatever it is I'm currently thinking about. So yeah, there's a couple at uh, CodeMesh over the last couple of years. There's uh, Scala World. There's uh, Lambda Days from last year, Lambda Days 2015. I gave a talk about correctness and concurrency. And I'm sure some others that I can't remember off the top of my head. And where can people follow you online and keep up to date with things as you go on? Twitter, blog university site so i'm on twitter as edwin brady so just my name i mostly talk about stuff that's happening in idris as well as occasionally ranting about cricket or whatever train i happen to be stuck on but you know i I talk about developments in idris there i do have a blog but i don't post on it very often uh, unless maybe i've written a paper or something like that so if you keep an eye on that you might uh, see whatever the latest uh, more academic developments are in the idris world and you can find me on the Hash Idris IRC channel. So that's a reasonably active channel. There's sort of 200 odd people on it. Generally, there's you know a lot of discussion about just beginner questions as well as some more tricky problems that people are encountering, as well as a little bit of discussion about future directions for the language. So it's um, if you want to really find out the details of what's going on in the world of Idris and the the IRC channel is is often quite a good place to just just hang around, and we have a mailing list too. So there's a um, if you just go to the website and look up the mailing list, that's generally the best place to hear about things like new releases and new features that are being added or old features that are being removed. Yeah, I think that's about it, really. And I'll make sure to get all those links added to the show notes as well for people to follow, so they don't have to go hunt for them themselves. It's great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Edwin, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure getting you on and talking with you and getting some insights into Idris and essentially just showing me how much I have to learn about this stuff. But thank you for taking your time. It's I've been wanting to have you on a guest as a while. So thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.